before we get to the show, we wanted to ask for your help with an episode that we're working on. We're looking for listeners who want to answer these questions. If your student loan debt was canceled, how would that impact your life? What would you be able to afford if you didn't have to include a loan payment in your budget? What would change for you or someone you care about in a world without student loan debt? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 731-388-9334. Be sure to leave your name and where you're from. Again, that number is 731-388-9334. Goldie here. If you are a longtime listener of Pitchfork Economics, you know that we spend a lot of time on economic myth-busting, which led me to a new book by Michelle Marr called Competition is Killing Us, How Big Business is Harming Our Society and Planet and What to Do About It. So it was really fun to talk with the author, Michelle Marr. Uh, about the six myths of market capitalism and how we need to change both our ideology and the law. Hi, my name is Michelle Marr. I'm an antitrust lawyer and I have just written a book called Competition is Killing Us, How Big Business is Harming Our Society and Planet and What to Do About It. Thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast. I guess the place to start, the the first half of your book, you outline the six myths of competition. Could, could you quickly summarize them for us? Yes, absolutely. The real core of the book is debunking the six myths that are embedded within market capitalism and really trying to unravel this question of why does capitalism tend to concentrate wealth and power in so few hands but spread its harm so widely. The first myth I debunk is this idea that free markets are competitive. Actually, it turns out that over the last few decades, markets have been getting more and more concentrated. 75% of industries in the US are more concentrated now than they were 25 years ago. Or you could take a really profound statistic, like 82% of stock market value comes from monopoly wealth of the tech sector. So this isn't free markets working efficiently. Actually, they're getting more concentrated. The second myth that I talk about is this idea that companies compete to serve the interests of society. In that chapter, I really talk about shareholder value. This is this idea that it's the legal duty of company directors to maximize financial value for shareholders. And what does that do? It makes companies seek market power through market concentration. And also it forces them to attempt to shift as many costs of their business out onto society. These are all the harms that we see emanating from the corporate sector, from harms to the environment, harms to social fabric, and so on. Then I talk about the third myth, the idea that corporate power is benign. And that idea has really taken hold of regulators everywhere. This idea that big companies are efficient, they're dynamic, they're innovative, and therefore the last thing we should do is really hold them back or discourage them from doing what they're doing. And that idea is really based on another myth, that the markets themselves will sort themselves out. Actually, left to their own devices, um, you know, a new com- competitor will come in and challenge that Goliath company, and then the next MySpace will be taken over by Facebook. And what I really challenge there is this idea that corporate power is benign. In fact, there are so many ways that corporate power is leveraged against the average person. And there are so many ways that we know that the imperfections of the market allow companies to entrench their power, which means that the next new challenger actually can't come along. They're kept out of the market. And then the fourth myth is that we already control corporate power with antitrust laws. 
actually antitrust have been steadily diluted over the past few decades. And we see that regulators are rubber stamping mergers one after the other, and really not using the powers that they could be using to control corporate power. The fifth myth, if you're still with me, um, <laughs> is that the law requires directors to maximize shareholder value. Actually, it's a real misunderstanding of the law. The law actually allows companies to do many things, but business has decided to interpret that law in a very narrow way. And there are all these mechanisms for making sure that that's exactly what directors do. Yeah, it, it's funny on that one because, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about it and it's not only not the law, it's the opposite of what the normal was 50 years ago. Exactly. So if you talk to directors from companies in the 50s, they would never have said that their duty is to maximize shareholder profit. And it's not even what most of the case law says. And in the UK, when I'm talking to you from today, it's not even what the text of our law says. And yet the UK is probably the prime hub for exporting this idea of shareholder value around the entire English speaking world. So somehow the interests of shareholders are being taken into account, despite whatever the law says. And then just to complete it, the last myth I tackle in the book is a direct response to people who say, well, it's okay if companies only take shareholder interests into account, because are we after all, all shareholders, we all own shares in companies either directly or through our pensions. But actually, it's not really that surprising, really, but shareholder wealth is just as unequal, if not more so than income wealth. Your shareholdings generally are directly related to how much income you have. So we find, unsurprisingly, that it's white, wealthy men, typically, who have significant shareholder wealth. So we're not all shareholders by any means. And all of the harms that are perpetrated by companies in the name of maximizing shareholder value are really harming the poorest the most. So that's a quick run through of the book. You have just done an amazing job of not only summarizing the first half of your book, but summarizing much of what we've talked about on Pitchfork Economics for the past couple of years. Well, I hope people still go and buy it. <laughs> they should, because it is a great, uh, the whole book, actually, it's not a long book. It's not a hard read. Uh, it's a, I found it to be a, a great, again, that in your part one, a great summary of these issues in a way that People who listen to our podcast know Nick and I can be a little tangential. Uh, so this is a very tight narrative that gets to the heart of the problem. Well, and, and that was a real concerted effort on my part. I think that one of the problems with topics like antitrust and corporate law is that the space has been really occupied by experts, technocrats, and is largely operated out of the view of the public. So people have the sense that markets are concentrating, that there's huge economic power being wielded. They don't have the tools um, to necessarily identify that. And so that was a huge part of the reason why I wrote the book, to distill it out in language and arguments that everyone can get their head around. And, and you mentioned the word power, talking uh, about how important that notion is, both in, in evaluating competition, evaluating antitrust and how to respond to it. You mentioned Matt Stoller in your book, and we've talked to Matt about that as well. How much is that missing, this idea of confronting power? How much is that missing from the modern uh, antitrust uh, legal framework? I'd say it's almost completely missing. It's starkly absent, actually, in the laws that were originally designed to challenge concentrated economic power to protect democracy. 
the laws have effectively been twisted so that we're now looking at this concept efficiency. That's the standard to which business is held. And so that standard that can conveniently be applied in a way that is actually extremely business friendly. And that should be a huge concern for us. And I think that we know instinctively that there's something wrong with the way that power is structured in our markets. And we know that just looking at efficiency and just looking at how, at how cheap things are uh, doesn't capture the full picture. So if we take an example like Uber, when Uber doesn't provide paid sick leave and doesn't provide holiday and paid rest times, all sorts of other things like parental leave, those are costs that effectively have to be picked up somewhere and they're picked up in society. And if we look at just, just at how cheap those rides are on Uber, we should really be thinking about the VC war chest that is subsidizing those rides. And what we're not getting is decent jobs for the people who are having to take that form of employment. There's so many tricky things to unpack there, but I think one thing we know for sure is that looking at ourselves in our capacity as consumers alone isn't enough. All antitrust cares about in terms of power is whether a company can increase its price over the competitive market level. We know that focusing just on that will absolve a lot of power um, that is actually exercised in the market. And I think an, another important example you use is Facebook. Uh, you know, Facebook is using its market power to undermine democracy. That might be important in evaluating antitrust, uh, whether or not a company has the power to destroy your democracy. It should be. Um, and if we look at the Federal Trade Commission's response to the Cambridge Analytica data breach, effectively, it was a $5 billion fine, which obviously is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money to Facebook. They were very blithe on their earnings call, reporting to investors that they would just put aside $5 billion, um, knowing that the fine was coming from the regulator. And it was just effectively a cost of doing business. It's, it's hardly a deterrent. And even just on the price aspect, you know, we think that we get Facebook services for free. A lot of people, I'm sure, on your show um, as well have probably talked about how if a product is free, then probably you are the product. But in the case of Facebook, we're really inputs to their product. All of our data is going to create the product that Facebook then sells to advertisers. And it's also actually a myth that you're not paying for it in actual money. Um, the UK uh, Competition and Markets Authority did a study showing that between them, the duopoly that Google and Facebook have over online ads is effectively as if we were paying a 500 pound tax from each household in the UK that's going mostly to those two companies. I mean, if you think about that, it's like if the UK government had said we should impose a 500 pound tax on every household in the UK, uh, you know, we'd be an uproar. But we don't really say anything when it's going to Google and Facebook. And how are we paying that? Well, we're paying it through the increased prices that we pay for the products we buy after we click those ads. It's not free. Of course, somebody is paying for it and, and that somebody is us. And I think that really prices in any event is, is the wrong place to start. So, you know, as you say, we should be thinking about the spread of online hate, the spread of disinformation, the threats to our democracy. We should be asking, you know, can we really ever have a free election again, um, an undistorted election, obviously very relevant um, in America now? You know, can we look at the results of the Brexit referendum? Um, you know, there's plenty of evidence showing tampering of information there. So I think that there's so much more to look at than prices to consumers. Right. Can, can we have a functioning... Uh, newspaper industry? Can we have actual journalism with Facebook and Google monopolizing all the advertising dollars? Exactly. 
Um, and they want us to think that there's no other way for things to be. They say, this is really innovative. We're serving you up your news in this com convenient format. It's right there in your Facebook newsfeed. It's right there on your Google search results. But then when they're forced to pay for it, so in France, the French government put in a law that said, if you're going to be scraping all of this journalistic effort, then you need to be paying publishers for that information. And Google just left that market. So as soon as they're actually forced to do something other than this extractive business model, they decide that actually they'd rather not be in it at all. So this idea that they exist in order to spread the world's information or to connect people, I think is just a really poisonous narrative to distract us from how these markets actually work. Right. So when you have a, a our current antitrust regime, which focuses almost entirely on consumer prices, when you're looking at mergers and acquisitions, what's... Uh, what's going to be the cost of consumers? Will the price go up or will the price go down? And you have industries like we have now in tech where there is no price to consumers. There's no, We're not actually paying a dollar value. It becomes literally impossible to evaluate the impact of antitrust if that's your, the only factor you're looking at. Exactly. And I think that these companies often use that fact to effectively walk through their regulatory maze and say that actually customers love us. They love our products. And it's true that customers do, but it's also true that that might have been the case 10 years ago when these products were first being developed. But they weren't essential products then. They were just products that you were choosing. What you didn't know and what you couldn't have known then is that you were effectively locking yourself into their systems. You can't take your data elsewhere. There's really no competition. There's no alternative to you as a consumer. If you don't like the way that Facebook treats your data, you don't have many other places to go unless you're like a trendy teenager. Then you can use some newfangled app that I probably haven't even heard of. But, but um, it will be acquired by Facebook eventually anyway. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's been their pattern. And you see um, that a lot of venture capitalists will openly say that they won't invest in any of those companies unless there's a clear path to acquisition. But who wants to go up against the might of the Facebooks, of the Googles of the world? They have this enormous war chest, billions and billions of dollars that's just sitting there waiting uh, to make these acquisitions or to essentially clone your product and can compete you out of the market that way. Let's get to the solution side. You are an attorney you, you, who specialized in antitrust. And so a lot of the conversations we've had on the podcast so far have come from uh, economists and journalists, uh, even philosophers, but you specialize in the law. How do we modify the law to address the situation we're in now? Well, I think that there's a lot that we can do with the laws that we have. And I think that where those fall short, we should be filling in those gaps. So I like to think of the three buckets of solutions under these three headings. I don't actually use this framing in the book, although I really should have. Um, and so I'm going to use it from now on. The first is that we can disperse power. The second is that we can democratize power. And the third is to dissolve power. So if I start with the first one, disperse power, that's actually pretty straightforward. We should be using the antitrust laws for what they were designed for, and we should approve fewer mergers. We should be more skeptical of the claims of efficiencies that companies make. We know that if they have the capacity to make efficiencies, then probably those are going to be rolled up as dividends to shareholders and not actually rolled down to consumers and lower prices. So we should be more skeptical of that. 
We should challenge more abuses of power. We should define power much more broadly and look at all these different ways that power can be exercised. And ultimately, we should break up companies where that's possible and where it would actually help solve the problem. So where the problem itself comes from the bigness of the entities in that market. So that all goes under the bracket of dispersing power. The second limb is democratizing power. So by that, I mean fundamentally changing the nature of how some of the most powerful corporations in the world work. And really, this is focused on systemically important companies and forcing them to serve the public interest. That can be done, for example, by changing um, fiduciary duties of directors. Um, although I always say that if you're going to do that, then you also need to give stakeholders that they're supposed to be protecting um, real rights to enforce that new fiduciary duty. And more powerfully, you can actually give stakeholders direct representation. So there should be musicians on the board of Spotify or drivers on the board of Uber. Um, they need to have a say and visibility and some element of control over corporate decision making. And then another way that you can democratize power is by really encouraging countervailing power. So whilst we may have some entities that by their nature are going to be big and powerful, we also should be making space for smaller entities to get together to go up against them. So if you think about collective bargaining on the part of um, Uber drivers, that should be allowed. It's actually currently illegal. Um, that would be an illegal cartel if these drivers are indeed independent businesses as Uber and others insist they are. So we should be fostering cooperative business models and really allowing the small guys to get together to hold the big guys to account. That's all under the idea of democratization. And then the final one is dissolving. On this, we can start by asking, what is it to be a corporation? How do these entities get to exist? Uh, well, they exist through charters, um, but chartering used to be a different process. It wasn't just going and filling in a form and there you go, you've got a company. Originally, companies, in order to exist, had to get a charter from the king or queen in England or from the parliament or, or Congress. And it required an act of Congress uh, to create a company. And companies didn't get to exist forever. They got a charter that lasted 20 years, 40 years. It depended on the specific project for which the charter was granted. So digging a particular canal or um, building a bridge. And those were the kinds of projects for which you were allowed to effectively get a monopoly because you were completing public work. You were actually doing something for the public good. And people forget that the whole purpose of chartering corporations was to serve the public good. Not just in vague theory, moralistic, but that, that legally, that was the purpose of chartering a corporation. Yes, it was very specific. You had very specific things that you were meant to be doing and very specific things that you weren't allowed to do. Like you weren't allowed to buy other companies in your industry. You might not be able to vertically integrate. Uh, you might not be able to hold over a certain amount of debt. Um, there are all sorts of restrictions placed on those companies. And if they abused their power, then their charters were revoked. And that system had a lot of problems. Um, it was hugely nepotistic. You effectively had to be friends with a senator to get a charter. And we definitely don't want to go back to that kind of system. But on the other hand, I think that we would do well to really challenge this idea that companies get to exist forever, regardless of how they operate. We should bring back this idea that charters can be revoked. And in fact, um, charter revocation laws exist in, I think, pretty much all of the states um, in America. And we have something equivalent here in the UK. It's just not used very often um, because there is this overwhelming idea that companies just 
deserve to exist once they've been created and they should just exist forever. And I think that we should really be using these powers to, to dissolve companies uh, that breach the public interest. What would that look like if we were to uh, revoke the charter of an, an Uber or a Facebook? Well, I think an interesting thought experiment actually comes in the fossil fuel sector. So if we think about how long it's taken for the oil industry to really own up to the catastrophic harm that's caused by burning of fossil fuels and, and causing climate change, there's all this evidence that Exxon knew, that all of these companies knew the harm that they were facilitating. And they might even say that they had a fiduciary duty not to spread that information because that would have harmed their shareholders. And then if we fast forward to today, these companies are, if not falling over themselves, they're at least trying to one by one announce that they will change their ways. British Petroleum announced uh, the other day that they're going to move to net zero. So we take this process, which took decades, which in the meantime has potentially irreparably harmed the whole of humanity. But if you have something like a power to dissolve companies that breach the public interest, I think that at the very least, it would have focused people's minds. Um, you know, people would have understood, directors of those companies and their shareholders as well, would have understood that it's even in their own interests and the interests of the company to immediately resolve these problems and not to leave them sitting there for decades. Because if the regulator actually has the power to challenge the existence of your company at an existential level, it's no longer a question of, oh, I can just pay a fine and it's the cost of doing business. Or in the DuPont case, you get taken to court and then decades after DuPont has poisoned the you know, water in West Virginia, some of the people who were harmed get a payout. But for DuPont, it really doesn't affect them in the short term. Whereas if you have something like a discussion between the government and a company saying, well, if you don't clean up your act, we're actually just going to shut you down and um, we'll just wait and see. I'm sure another energy company will come along that's less with a less poisonous um, business model. Then you might have a completely different discussion on your hands. Could, could it work? Because I was thinking and reading your book, could it work something like a bankruptcy proceeding where uh, you take you take them into court and you reorganize you don't dispossess the shareholders in this case. You simply uh, take over the board. It could happen that way. Um, and that is sometimes how it does happen. So in the UK, we've got this provision, as I said, um, it's actually in insolvency law. So you're right um, in your intuition as to how it would operate. And it tends to be used against you know, minor financial scams or Ponzi schemes. And what they do is essentially try to protect all of the stakeholders that have effectively been harmed by that company existing. And so if you take the fossil fuel example, it might be repurposing the enormous market capitalization of these companies and the money that they've got sitting as savings and repurposing it towards green energy. And that company would still exist just in a completely different form. And as you say, shareholders, particularly to the extent that those shareholders can be said to be unwitting participants, so that might be people's pensions, you know, could be protected even you know, despite uh, decarbonization. Because we know there's money to be made in other ways of generating energy. Uh, so it's not like that expertise in energy won't be needed. It's just that we need it to be pointing in a different direction. And ironically, it might actually maximize shareholder value because if if you've held on to BP and uh, ExxonMobil stock the past couple of years, you've lost a ton of value. <laughs> Those stocks have been going down. <laughs> exactly. So I think the point really is that through all of these measures, um, dispersing power, democratizing power and dissolving it. It's not an anti-business idea. It's just trying to rebalance the power between business and the public and society or, or the state. 
And it's, it's not about throwing away value. It's about pushing business into those spaces that are most valuable. And they can also be financially valuable. It's just that you also need to tie it into things like paying taxes, corporate taxes, and not avoiding taxes, and actually paying back into society, which was the whole compact that business had with the state in the first place. Okay, so now I'll, I'll play. I'll, I'll do the classic devil's advocate, but but Michelle, the market regulates itself. Shouldn't we just have less regulation, and then we wouldn't have all of these uh, spillovers and negative externalities? Well, Goldie, that's a really lovely idea. <laughs> um, and I think what you really get to there, um, though, in all seriousness, is when people ask me what could be done, everyone loves the list of legal solutions. You know, you can flip right to the back of the book and read about all the laws that can be changed or beefed up or um, enforced with greater rigor. But really, it's the first half of the book, the debunking of the myths, the changing um, ideology that is how we actually change things and where we can actually move the needle because these ideas are so embedded in everything about the way that we think about economic regulation, the way that we think about wealth, the way we think about productivity, all of these things are linked together. And so I really think that it's the ideological problem that we need to solve first. And really the vision for competitive markets that I'm trying to put forward is one where as a citizen, as a consumer, and as a worker, um, as a parent, as a member of humanity, I can move away from this idea that the market is the place where I take my bundle of cash and I buy whatever I can afford and I use my paycheck to try and influence the world. I move to an idea where I'm an active participant in society and in the economy, and I'm not just a recipient of either the benefits or the harms of that competitive system. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the the problems we've had in our narrative is this idea of separating the market out from the rest of society. That somehow there's this market that is self-regulating, that there's some sort of equilibrium, that the market outside of the political system, outside of our social systems can reach if we just let it do its thing. And if you want to believe that, and it's a uh, very enticing thing to believe because it makes everything easy, okay, but understand that there is no market. It's all just one big social system. And so in a sense, nations, people through their governments uh, deciding to regulate a market, deciding to regulate companies, well, that's, that's self-regulatory. <laughs> that is, in a sense, the whole system working instead of the market by itself. That's exactly right. I think that there's um, this idea that the market exists, that it's always existed in its current form. But we create the market. It's entirely through the law that we create these market systems. And there are multiple ways that that has a feedback loop. So one is if we deregulate the market in a way that is regulation. We're just choosing not to intervene. Um, and also, if we allow the market to do its thing with all the imperfections that modern economics has really laid out pretty clearly for us, um, we know that power will continue to snowball and concentrate into fewer and fewer hands. And that's not just economic power, it's also political power. And economic power can be leveraged into that political power in a way that allows those market actors to effectively shape their regulatory environment. So you get this feedback loop where we're always one step behind. It's actually going against our interests. So if you were, if we appointed you benevolent dictator, let's say in this case of the world, uh, no political or fiscal constraints, what would you do to address this problem? Well, I think sticking with this idea that uh, it's really ideology that's the problem, that so many of the solutions flow so naturally from shifting that ideological mindset. I think I would 
go into all of the business schools around the world and burn up all the textbooks that talk about competition and ruthless market rivalry and stamping on your competitor and pushing them out of the market. I'd get rid of all of those textbooks. Um, I would get rid of the idea that that is what successful business looks like, that a successful business isn't one that has fostered a community around itself, that has a nice dialogue with its suppliers, with its workers, with its customers, but rather is this lonely company standing and the, the last one standing, the only one that's been able to achieve success. So maybe it's more like going and being Mark Zuckerberg's therapist and saying, <laughs> Really? Um, is that what you want? Is is this what you wanted? Is is that this what any human being really wants and, and why? Um, and doing something about that. So maybe we all need some collective therapy or something uh, to get us out of thinking this way. Um, but definitely I'd, I'd start with the thoughts. I'm I'm worried that Zuckerberg might answer that question. Yes, this is exactly what I want. I mean, at some point, we have to consider the fact that he he may just be a bad person. Possibly, but I don't think he will have started out that way. Yeah. Um. You know, this is kind of what I mean. If you have all of these magazines saying how amazing it is that he's so young and he's so successful, and this is the narrative, that is what success presumably looks like to him because he never did what the rest of us do, which is graduate from college, go out into the world and realize that it's not quite what you thought it was. And having to shape your identity around all of these different ways that we contribute to society, not just have I made a billion dollars or, or whatever it is. That... Uh, well, once again, we get we get back to power. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I want to thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast and thank you for the book. It was uh, a great read and I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.